Open your Bibles to Psalm 39, would you? Last Sunday, we began our summer sermon series in the Psalms with Psalm 38, picking up where we left off last year. This morning, we come to Psalm 39, and in this psalm, we hear David cry out to God from a place of deep anguish. He tells us that he tried to hold his peace, but to no avail, because when he kept silent, his heart burned and his distress grew worse. I suspect that we have all been there. I know that I have. We've all been in those hard places where we couldn't just hold our peace, but we didn't know what to say either. In the psalm, David models for us what it looks like to cry out to God in tears, but also in hope. So let's pray and ask God to strengthen us to receive his word here this morning. Would you pray with me? Guide us, O God, in the reading of your word, and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 39. To the choir master. A Psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. Welcome, everybody. Good to be back with y'all. Now, I know that this picture is kind of small, but can you see what's in this picture? L Lily, can you describe it to everybody? It's a storm and a boat. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of small. 
it's a, it's a little storm and a boat. It, it's a small boat in a big storm, I think it would be safe to say. Now, if you were on this boat and all you could see was lightning all around and massive waves, how might you be feeling? Scared, yeah. That pretty much sums it up, I think. Um, what words might you be saying if you were that scared? What might you say if you were really that scared? If you were in that tiny little boat right there? You would spell help. Yes, yes, that's right. Help might be some, one of the words that comes out of your mouth. Yeah. Now, I, I think if all that I could see was the storm, then I would feel pretty hopeless. Not, not just scared, I'd feel pretty hopeless. And, and you know, our life can be like that sometimes. When we look around, we see all sorts of scary things, and we realize that we have way less control over things than we actually imagine sometimes. But, but more than that, sometimes when we look inside ourselves, and we see that swirling mess of sin in our own hearts, then we feel caught in a storm of shame. And if the scary storm outside and the mess of sin inside is all that we see, then the only words that we'll probably say are going to be words of doubt and fear. But... Here's what I like about this drawing. The, the storm tossing the boat is not all that there is to see. Take a look at this. I, I'm going to just show everybody else the picture real quick, too. What, what else do you see? Yeah, Henry. It looks like God is whole. Just you? The whole storm and everything, the storm, the boat, and you. It, in the arms holding the boat and the storm, this picture is actually reminding us of something that David is saying in Psalm 39, that there is more happening than just the storms of this life. God himself is above and beyond the storms, and it's all happening in his hands. It, do you see the letters on the arms? Uh, they're they're kind of weird, right? Uh, they're actually the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. And that's who God says He is. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He says that nothing happens apart from Him. Guys, God is constantly reminding us through His Word that there is more to see than the storms of this life. We see Him and hear about His love and His power and his care for us. And, and because we live in the time after Jesus came, we know that the hands that hold us and control every storm are hands that had nails driven through them so that nothing, not even our own sin, could separate us from the love of God. And so guys, we might still really get scared when storms come. We may still cry out to God in pain, ashamed of what we've done, but when we see beyond the storm and we remember that our little boat 
is held in the loving hands of our God, then we can also speak words of hope and trust. And because God gives us that hope in our risen King Jesus, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, guys, you can go back to your seats. If you haven't done so already, uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 39. As Sam said, we are in our summer sermon series, which means we will be working our way uh, through uh, the Psalms this uh, summer, uh, just in order. So 38 last week, 39 uh, today. And in this psalm, David begins by expressing his, his desire to keep, keep his mouth shut. I, I wonder how many of us were told at some point in our lives that if we didn't have anything nice to say, we shouldn't say anything at all. It may have been your mother, or it may have been a teacher, but, but somewhere, somebody once told you if, you, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And it seems that in the opening stanza of this psalm, that's exactly what David is trying to do. He is trying to keep his mouth shut, but he, he discovers that it doesn't work. Saying nothing at all just made things worse. The bitter words in his mouth that he wanted to say, when he, when he held them in, they just simply took root in his heart and, and made it burn. For David, not speaking wasn't a solution. David needed to do more than hold his peace. He needed to speak a different kind of word. But before we get to the words that he does speak, let's, let's first look more closely at these words that he is so keen not to speak. The, the first thing that we see here in this psalm is that there is a way of talking about our lives. There is a, a way of, of talking about our circumstances and our experiences that prompts unbelievers to blaspheme the name of God. That is what David is concerned about. It's why he has resolved not to sin with his tongue. Notice again, he says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David is concerned about the wicked who will be listening in. He's concerned about the, the wicked who will hear the anointed of God, the king of Israel, speaking in a certain way about his life and about his circumstances. <clears throat> He's concerned that he might say something that would cause them to mock or even scorn God's name, as we see in verse 8. He, he doesn't want to speak those kinds of words. So what is this way of talking about our lives that causes the wicked to, to blaspheme the name of God? What is this way of talking that David wants to avoid? Let me say first that, that David cannot be talking simply about truly acknowledging the reality of our hard or painful circumstances. The Psalms are full of such acknowledgments. How often do we hear the psalmist say that, that he's in a hard place? We, we hear it, for example, you have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Or, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Or, many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. Again and again and again throughout the Psalms, you can almost just pick one at random. You find the, the psalmist speaking about his hard circumstances. You find him uh, expressing that he is in a difficult place. There's nothing improper, there is nothing wrong about acknowledging the reality of hard and painful circumstances. On the contrary, it would be wrong for us to deny the miseries of this present evil age. We do not honor God when we pretend that things are not broken. We, we do not honor God when we pretend that, that this world is, is really not all that bad. That's not the way that we honor God. And so David cannot be talking about merely acknowledging the reality of hard or painful circumstances. Nor can he be talking about simply expressing the anguish that you experience in the midst of such circumstances. That, that, you're, that you're suffering, that you're groaning. Again, the, the Psalms are full of such expressions. Just think of what we heard last Sunday in Psalm 38. David said, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. David is not afraid to express the anguish that he is experiencing in the midst of the circumstances within which he finds himself. Or think of Psalm 22, the, the psalm that Jesus himself quoted from the cross. We know the, the first line, Oh God, why have you forsaken me? But, but later in that psalm, the, the psalmist goes on to say, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Again, the psalmist is not afraid to express his anguish. There, there is nothing wrong or improper about expressing the, the truth of our suffering. On the contrary, the, the scriptures and the, the psalms in particular not only encourage us to do so, they give us the words. They teach us how to express our suffering. So again, we, we don't honor God by putting on a happy face. We don't honor God by pretending that we are fine. And so therefore, again, David cannot be talking about merely expressing the reality of our anguish. And we need to hear this. We, we need to understand what David doesn't mean. It's, it's important for us as we, as we seek to live lives honoring to the Lord. It is not wrong to acknowledge the truth of our circumstances or to express the, the truth of our experiences, even a, and especially when those truths are hard and painful. Honoring God doesn't look like playing make-believe. Honoring God doesn't look like wearing a happy face. We need to know that. But of course, it only brings us back to our question. What then is this way of talking about our life that David is so keen to avoid? What is this way of talking about our life that causes the wicked to blaspheme the name of God? 
Obviously, David doesn't give us the formula here in this psalm. He, he is simply assuming it. But, but Scripture as a whole gives us enough memorable examples of such speech that I think we can be pretty sure we know what kind of talk David has in mind. Maybe the most memorable examples are, are found in the books of Exodus and Numbers, which we've been slowly working our way through on Wednesday evenings for the last several years. These, these, verse, these books reveal to us a way of talking about God that dishonors him and causes others to do the same. Remember what we see there. After God rescued the people out of Israel, after, after he rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt, what do we hear? We, we again and again hear them grumbling and complaining against God. Not, not merely expressing the reality of their circumstances, not merely expressing the, the truth of their anguish, but again and again questioning and impugning the character of God. We were better off in Egypt, they say. You've only brought us out here to, to kill us in the wilderness. Again and again, the common characteristic of their complaints is that they are impugning the character of God. They don't simply acknowledge that they're in a hard place. They don't just express their doubts and anxieties and, and fears as the psalmists so often do, but rather they call God foolish or wicked or weak. They accuse him of malfeasance. They they charge him with treating them unjustly. And one can easily imagine how such grumbling and complaining could, could prompt believers, to unbelievers, to, to blaspheme the name of God. And it would seem that this is the sort of talk that David is so keen to avoid. He, he has hard thoughts about God, but he knows that expressing them will not only dishonor God, but will cause others to join in with him in that dishonor. And so he knows, and, and we must see that we cannot and, and must not impugn God's goodness by suggesting that he is treating us unjustly. We must not impugn God's wisdom by, by suggesting that, that his way has, has led only to our demise. We must not impugn God's strength by looking elsewhere for our rescue, as Israel so often did. We must not impugn God's love by suggesting that he has forgotten us or is actively working to bring about our harm. We can express feelings of abandonment as David does in Psalm 22 and as Jesus quoted from the cross. But we must not forget, even in that same psalm, David goes on to recount God's faithfulness. He feels forsaken, but he remembers that in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. And more than that, more than just simply remembering, he entrusts himself to his heavenly Father. Even when he feels abandoned, he recounts that God is faithful and he puts his faith in him. What he doesn't do is suggest that God has faithlessly, finally, and fully abandoned him. So we can acknowledge the truth of our circumstances. We, we can express the truth of our experiences. But we must not impugn the character of God when we complain against him. That's the kind of speech that 
that David is seeking to avoid. That's the, the kind of speech that David is seeking to, to keep in. But how do we keep from speaking such sinful words? Well, David gives us his answer, at least his initial answer there in verse 2. Look again. David says, I was mute and silent. David resolved not to sin with his tongue by not using his tongue at all. He resolved not to sin with his words by avoiding words altogether. Again, I wonder if you've ever done that. I wonder if you've ever followed your mom's advice and thought, well, if I have nothing nice to say, I just won't say anything at all. And if you've ever tried that, I I wonder, how did it go for you? More often than not, when our mouths are full of sinful words, words that, that we are, are desperate to let go, but that we're trying hard to hold in. Often when our mouths are full of such sinful words and our hearts of, are full of hard thoughts about God, those words and those hearts, thoughts, when kept in, simply spoil and fester and eventually poison our heart. They bring forth bitterness and self-pity and resentment. That was certainly David's experience. Look again at what he says. He says, I held my peace, but to no avail. My distress only grew worse. My heart burned within me. And so when we are tempted to speak sinful words, words that would cause the wicked to blaspheme the name of God, the solution is not simply to say nothing. The solution is not simply to hold our peace. Keeping such words in doesn't help. What we need is to speak different words. And that's what we see David begin to do in the second stanza. That's what we see David begin to do in verses 4 through 6. Look at the end of verse 3. David says, Then, after trying to remain silent and things only getting worse, then I spoke with my tongue. After silence didn't work, David speaks and he, and he tells us what he said. He cried out to God saying, O oh Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Reminds me of Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 where he cries out to God, Teach us to number our days that we may get Wisdom. David is not merely asking God to help him see how how brief human life is. He he is asking God to help him put his life in perspective. He is asking God to help him see that this life is but a breath from the perspective of eternity. We we see this at the end of the psalm when, when David refers to himself as a sojourner and a guest. Think about those terms. A sojourner and a guest both describe someone who is not at home. One is in the land for a longer period. One is maybe there only overnight. But neither one is sleeping in their own bed. Neither one is home. They are both on their way. And David knows that that is his condition. David knows that he is a sojourner. David knows that he is a guest because he knows that this world is not his home. His home is ultimately with the Lord. 
This is what he is asking God to help him remember when he says, make me know my end in the measure of my days. Let me know that my life is but a breath. Let me know that my life is but a, a shadow. He is, he is asking God to help him to regain that perspective from eternity. But of course, this leads us to ask, what is the connection between seeing life from an eternal perspective and not impugning God's character with our words? How does seeing from an eternal perspective silence the words that we're, we're so anxious to get out? If you think about it, it would seem that all our accusations against God's character the times when, when we want to impugn his, his wisdom or his, his love or his, his goodness, when, when we want to, to denounce God's character, that temptation is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of this life. It is, it is rooted in a, a fundamental under, misunderstanding of what, what this life here and now really is. You see, when we, when we see this life as ultimate, when we, we see this life as, as really the only life, when we see this life as our only source of, of joy or, or happiness or, or fulfillment, when we think we must have all our good things here and now, we lose the ability to see God's work truly. We, we lose the ability to see his faithfulness. We, we lose the ability to, to see the, the glory of the good that he is ultimately working for those who love him. When we see this life as ultimate, we begin to demand that God bless us here and now. That God fulfill all his promises for us in this life. If God is faithful, it has to be now. If it's not now, then he's not faithful. This is the way that we begin to think. When we see this life as ultimate, we lose the ability to wait on the Lord and to entrust ourselves to him. Have you ever seen one of those pictures generated by computers? They, they just look like a random swirl of, of colored dots, so long as you're looking at the picture. But the moment you begin to look through the picture, the moment you begin to look to a point beyond the picture, then all of a sudden the, the 3D picture of the dolphin or the turtle or whatever it is happens to, to pop out at you. So long as you're looking at the picture, you can't see it, but when you look through it, when you look beyond it, you see what's really there. That's something like what David is describing. So long as we look at this life as ultimate, we cannot see God. We cannot see his good, perfect, and pleasing will. We, we cannot see what he is doing. We, we cannot see the glory of the good that he is working for those who love him. It is only when we look through, his, the, the, through this life, it's only when we look through it to eternity, that we begin to see God in his true glory. That we begin to see his true goodness, his, his true wisdom, and his true love. You see, remembering the brevity of this life is not merely about knowing that eventually it's going to end and the, the suffering will be over. There's something to that. But there's much more going on here. That's not the comfort that, that David is, is seeking. Rather, David is asking God to help him remember that here and now in this life, he is but a sojourner and a guest. That here and now, he is a pilgrim on the way. 
that this world is not his final home. But as the author of Hebrews says, he is on his way to a better country. He is on his way to a better, permanent, unshakable, heavenly city. Because it is this perspective that allows us to endure the hardships and the trials of this life. It is this perspective, this this perspective that reminds us that, that here and now is brief and momentary compared to the age to come. And therefore the trials and afflictions of this life are brief and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. That glory that is beyond all comparison to anything in this fleeting age. And notice that. It's not just that we can endure because we know that that our suffering won't last forever. That's that's true. But but beyond this, in some mysterious, uh, uh, miraculous way, those sufferings are actually preparing for us a glory. God is actually using them for our good. We don't always see the full picture. We don't always know exactly what he's up to. His thoughts are are beyond us. His his ways are, are, are beyond us. But we know that he is God, that he is faithful, and that he is working for the good of those who love him. That's the hope and sure and certain faith of the one who knows himself to be a sojourner and guest of the Lord. It was a reminder that we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the age to come. It is a reminder that this life is not ultimate, and therefore we do not look for all of the fulfillment of all of God's promises here and now. But rather we wait. We wait with patience. Because we know that he who has called us is faithful, and he will surely do all that he has promised to do. That's what David is asking God to help him see and remember. And we must ask God to to help us get and and keep the same perspective because it's this perspective that allows us to pray as as David does in in verses 7 through 11. And and notice there are two parts to this prayer. And again, we, we need to see both of them. First, Having this eternal perspective silences, not only silences, but but actually calms his complaints. It not only allows him to keep the words in, but it it transforms them. Having uh, Having been made to know his end and the measure of his days, what does David say? He says, now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Having been reminded of of the the fleeting nature of this life, he he is reminded that that ultimately he is waiting upon the Lord who is his hope. Seeing the the brevity of this life and the, the foolishness of seeking life in this life, David's hope has been reoriented back to God and his coming kingdom. And with his hope thus reoriented, He renews his resolve not to complain against God. Again, notice he's he's committing himself to silence. He says, deliver me from all my transgressions. That that doesn't simply mean that he's he's wanting to be kept from from all sin in in general, but he's he's speaking here particularly about the sin of of causing God's name to be blasphemed. He's he's asking to be strengthened that he might keep his silence and, and endure even in the midst of his suffering so that he will not be made the scorn of fools. Again, he's not asking to be protected from the scorn of fools. He's asking not to be the source of their scorn. Do not let me say something that would cause them to to blaspheme the name of God. He's recommitting himself to silence. He's, He's asking to be strengthened 
that he might keep his mouth shut. But do you see the difference between this silence and the silence of the opening stanza? In the opening stanza, David was silent because he knew his words, uh, the words in his mouth were sinful, and he, he didn't want to let them out. He was questioning the character of God, and therefore he was, he was resolved not to speak. But, but here, he is holding his peace for a different reason altogether. Here, holding his peace is not because his words are sinful, but rather he keeps silent because he knows that his suffering is from God, from his heavenly Father. But notice David's new perspective, this, this reoriented hope, does not prevent him from crying out for relief. We need to see that. He's, he's entrusting himself to God. He's, he's resolving to be silent in the face of his anguish. And at the same time, he's crying out for relief. That's not the kind of silence we normally think about. The, the silence is the silence of complaining. He's not going to complain against God because he trusts him. But he still cries out. He says, remove your stroke from me. Remove this plague from me. Give me relief. He, he admits, I am spent by the hostility of your hands. In other words, I can't take much more. You, you have consumed all that is dear to me like a moth in the king's closet. But the difference is now he is crying out for mercy. He, he is not accusing God of, of wrongdoing. He's not accusing God of, of injustice, but, but rather he, he knows he is being disciplined. He knows he is being rebuked for his sin. He, he knows that, that, that God is working for his good. And so instead of, of, of crying out against God's injustice, he simply pleads for his mercy, pleading his own weakness. Have mercy on me, O God. I can't take much more. I'm nearly undone. These are the prayers that, that David brings before his heavenly Father. And, and again, it's vital that we see this balance. David both entrusts himself to God in hope and at the same time cries out to God for relief. It's not either or. It's not either you trust God or you pray to him asking him to relieve you from, from your hardships. It's, it's both. Even as you cry out to him, you entrust yourself to him. And as, as you entrust yourself to him, you cry out to him for relief. The, the scriptures don't make you choose. The scriptures give you permission to pray in both ways. In fact, the, such prayers are only joined together when we truly hope in him. Hope allows us to entrust ourselves to God knowing that he is working for our good, even as we plead to him for relief, knowing that he is working for our good and will not destroy us ultimately. This is the two-sided prayer of the one who has been made to know the measure of his days. This is the two-sided prayer of one who sees this life from the perspective of eternity. And so again, the, the question is, are you able to pray like this? Are you able to entrust yourself to your Heavenly Father in hope, even as you cry out to Him for relief? That's what this psalm is teaching you to do. And, and if that's a struggle for you, go back to where, where David begins in verse 4. Go back to asking God to teach you the measure of your days. Ask Him to give you that eternal perspective so that you might hope in Him even as you look to him for relief, because that's where the whole psalm ends. Look again at the, the final stanza. 
David pleads with God to hear his prayer. Give ear to my cry, he says. Do not hold your peace. Earlier, David was trying to hold his peace. He was, he was trying to keep his mouth shut. But now he says, do not hold your peace, God. Speak into my situation. Speak. Bring relief. Why? Because I am your guest. I am your sojourner. I am on my way to your good country. On my way to your heavenly city. But that doesn't mean I I want to endure this forever. He cries again, look away that I may smile again, even in this life. Even before I experience death here, Father, give me some relief. That's really the whole psalm in in summary, isn't it? Lord, I trust you, but get me out of this mess. I, I trust you, but I need relief. I trust you, but I am almost spent. I am almost undone. Rescue me from this anguish. David trusts his heavenly father, but he wants relief in this life. But because he trusts his heavenly father, he's willing to wait for it and ask for it as a gift. He does not demand as a spoiled child. He he does not demand as, as one who thinks he's being treated unjustly. But rather he cries out as one who is weak, looking for grace from the father who is able to help him. When we think life, when we think this life is ultimate, we are tempted to to blaspheme the name of God. But when we see him as our heavenly father in eternity, when we see ourselves as, as sojourners on the way, we are able to rest even as we cry out for relief, knowing that what God ordains will be for our ultimate good. That is the hope that sets us free to pray as David prays. And it's because of this hope, this this ultimate hope, that our Heavenly Father is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. It's because this hope belongs to all who call on the name of Jesus that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking, even as David asked, Father, that you would teach us the measure of our days, that we might get wisdom. Father, that you would show us that this life is but a breath and a shadow, that we might see it from the perspective of eternity, so that we might be able to entrust ourselves to you even in the midst of our anguish, even as we cry out for relief from that anguish. Father, teach us to pray as David prayed, because we trust in you even as he trusted in you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen.